And obviously it started to eat at me like, hey man, you you let this go for the rest of your life. You realize that, right? But I, I honestly, Kyle, was okay with it because I knew what I wanted to do in life. I'd always been passionate about player representation since I was a really young kid. Welcome into another episode of Baseball Americas from Phenom to the Farm, an interview series talking to former professional baseball players to reminisce about their playing days and what they learned on their journey from amateur ball to the professional ranks. I'm your host, Kyle Banduho. On today's episode, I am joined by Georges Kandarian, former Brewers farmhand, first-team All-ACC selection as a junior second baseman on Miami's 2015 College World Series team, and current MLB agent at MVP Sports Group. I walked into this episode curious on how and why George went from professional player to agent, like, you know, if it was a chicken or the egg thing. Turns out he wanted to be an agent from the get-go, before pro ball, before college, all the way down to elementary school. He talks about how that dream, that goal, along with the dream every kid has of being a big leaguer, influenced his entire career. We get into his recruitment as a high schooler, uh, first landing on Maryland, eventually enrolling at the University of South Carolina, and then his eventual decision to transfer from South Carolina to junior college, and then how he eventually landed at his dream school, Miami. When it comes to his pro career, I think George has one of the best when did you know it was time to walk away stories. It's something that a lot of players struggle with, a lot of players on this, this series have struggled with. It was interesting hearing George walk through that and how important you know, his, his post-playing goal, having that goal, uh, made his decision, how, it, how it, it helped him kind of move on to the next thing. We also obviously get into life as an agent and what a good agent brings to the table. It's something that you know we, we know about Scott Boris, we know about that whole group, but it was something very interesting to me to kind of hear about George's day-to-day, um, you know, how, how he goes about his business. Uh, very thankful, very grateful that George is able to take the time to join us on the show. Episodes of Phenom to the Farm drop every other Tuesday. If you enjoyed this one, subscribe to your podcast. Go check out past interviews. I believe this is number 40. Uh, if it's not, you know, don't quote me on that. And if you haven't yet, leave me a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know what you think of the show. Also, make sure to subscribe to BaseballAmerica.com and the BA Podcast feed for all amateur baseball and prospect news minor league baseball season has wrapped go check out the cover for the latest issue of the baseball america magazine bobby witt jr prospect of the year Uh, incredible season by him i got to go watch him play when he was in double a when he visited here in san antonio uh very much lives up to the hype a lot of great things going on at ba carlos colazzo ben badler doing feature projection always a good time to be subscribed to baseball america with that let's talk to george's kandarian all right, joining in for today's episode from Phenom to the Farm, he was a seventh-round pick of the Brewers in the 2015 draft out of the University of Miami. He's a current agent for MVP Sports Group. George Iskandarian. I, I know I pronounced that wrong. George, George, what's the pronunciation? Uh, Iskandarian. Actually, Iskandarian. And a lot of first suitors have have attempted in the past. Attendance was always an interesting part of my education process, but you did well. Yeah, I mean, me with the the last name Banduho, same thing. It was always, uh, and I was I was always a jerk about it. I would always kind of let the teacher like fight their way through it, and then raise my hand and be like, "Yeah, that's me." Uh, George, I'm I'm excited to have you on. Excited to talk about your career and your your current career, being an agent, first agent we have had on this show. I want to dive right into it. Uh, you're a northeastern guy, uh, high school in Jersey. Northeast baseball culture. You you grew up in the travel ball era. Travel ball era was thriving. 
uh, by the time you came up kind of in that present day of, of what it looks like now, what does that look like in Jersey? I know you, you traveled down to South Florida to play some travel ball. What was, what was baseball cultures you were getting into high school? Yeah. So obviously I had the pleasure of playing at one of the best high schools in the area in Don Bosco prep, which historically is actually a powerhouse football program. Um, for me, I think it was a little bit tougher back in the day. I used to play for a team called Baseball U, coached by John Wells, who was honestly a pretty had a pretty significant impact on my playing career. He was incredibly authentic and, and taught me structure and routine. And I think the thing is for kids today, obviously, you know, in our industry, we're recruiting the best players. And with that, a lot of times they're the superstar in their high school team or summer team. What I loved about John personally was that he treated everybody from ground zero, whether you were the star committed to an SEC, Big Ten, ACC program, or a guy that was scratching and clawing to find a Division three school. Um, I think it's the most important part of any player's development is being prepared to fail. If that makes sense, this game failure is inevitable. So John pretty much set the standard right away that, hey, all you guys are striving towards the same goal and we're going to treat everybody the same way here and you're going to earn your stripes through time. Um, so that was kind of the first summer ball team I played for here in Jersey. And then obviously as you're getting closer and closer to coming up to having to transition to college, I played for a team called uh, the Evo Shield Canes today and also the South Florida Bandits, um, which obviously granted me a platform to expose my skill sets and move on to the next level. But I think there's actually a, a wide variety of competitive teams in the Northeast here now. I think that's developed through time. And like we saw in, in previous year's drafts, obviously the talent pool in the Northeast is just as competitive as, as everywhere else in the country. So it's good to see. I think a lot of that ties into video and data. Obviously, um, we didn't necessarily have that back when I was a high school prospect, not making an excuse for my lack of being drafted in high school. <laughs> But I do think it helps players maximize their exposure in areas where, you know, it's a little bit colder and it's a little bit tougher to get out there and scout. Well, as you got that exposure and started thinking about where you were going to go to college, uh, Northeast, not known for its baseball weather. Was right. there was there any consideration to any of, you know, any of the schools out there, Big Ten schools, the Northern ACC schools, or was it always the plan to to head south? And how would you end up uh, enrolling in South Carolina? So it's funny that you asked that. Ironically, my sophomore year of high school, I actually was committed to the University of Maryland. Um, and at the time, listen, first and foremost for me, my mom's actually a principal. So education was key in this whole process. And, uh, you know, my whole life, I was actually preparing to be a sports agent. The first question I would ask in terms of education was, hey, what's your sports management program like? Because I always knew that when I my plan was to attend college, um, when I got there, I wanted to prep myself as best I could to transition into player representation. Um, so at the time, the coach at the program was a guy named Eric Backich, who's now obviously at the University of Michigan and has done a fantastic job with that program. Um, actually transitioned probably my junior year and took that job. So for me, obviously, Eric was a big component of why I had committed to that school. Um, and when he transitioned to Michigan, I recanted my commitment, opened it back up and Next thing you know, South Carolina came along. I remember taking the visit down there on campus, fell in love. They were just obviously coming off back-to-back -back titles. And then prior to my freshman year, they had actually lost in the finals to the University of Arizona. 
And uh, again, I remember sitting in that office with Ray Tanner, who was the head coach at the time. Was going to ask about that because you said Coach Backich leaving had you reopen your right. recruitment. Now, Ray Tanner didn't leave South Carolina, but he did step down as head coach of the program. How did that impact? Was that something you knew was going to happen before you enrolled? No, to be honest, I had no idea. Um, I remember getting there for summer school and Ray was just now transitioning over into taking that AD job. And Chad obviously a great guy who's now at the college of Charleston was the man that recruited me. Um, I trusted him still do to this day, had a great relationship with him. And, um, you know, for me, again, when I was there, um, they had a great sport management program. So it was, it was easy for me to not even necessarily consider the draft, um, for my family in particular is either, Hey, you're going to be offered a first round investment or, or you're going to school. We're not going to think twice about it, which the first round investment wasn't realistic. So I found my way in summer school quickly, but when Ray transitioned over to taking the AG, AD job, it did not change my mind on, on attending that program. And most baseball players, and I would say even most college students aren't baseball players are sure. Like I want to play baseball. I want to, I would love to be a pro do all that stuff. Most college students, like I know myself, I was like, I don't really know what I want to do when I grow up, when I got to college, you had this, you had this mission already. You were, you were already looking at, you wanting to be an agent, you're looking at the sports management program, you're, you're the three years you spent in college while playing at the three different institutions, which we'll get into. What did your course load look like if you were that driven, but also having to balance baseball? Were you, were you loading up your course load and trying to, trying to get that degree done? How did that kind of work out for you? Yeah, I think I was a little bit ahead of the game attending summer school, obviously. Um, and I think you try to be strategic as possible with balancing out your course load. So I take the bulk load of my tougher courses in the fall. And then obviously in the spring, you try to make it as mm, amicable as possible around your baseball season, if that makes sense. But I, I will say this for any student athlete, it is a tough balancing act. Looking back at it now, obviously when you're going through it, you do whatever it takes to get it done. But it, it is difficult. It takes an ample amount of discipline and hard work and sacrifice. But you know, it's, it's very much so worthwhile because I tell every player in a perfect world, let's say you play till you're 40 or 42, even after you give your speech in Cooperstown in the hall of fame, God willing, you still have about let's hope half your life to live. So I always incentivize guys to try and go back in the fall, even a high school draft pick and, and chip away at their degree slowly, but surely um, to me, knowledge is power. Even if you are a superstar athlete, I think you want to learn about different ways to invest your money, grow your brand, et cetera, et cetera. And to me, the only way to do that is, is dive into a deeper pool of knowledge. Um, so that's kind of it for in terms of, I guess you can say, structuring how the course load would work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as far as how the baseball work, kind of like you said, that program is coming off arguably the the greatest run of the modern them or Oregon state really in terms of a, sh a short run of two titles, another, you know, another, um, you know, getting eliminated in the finals, you walk into that team, you're a, you're a top recruit out of Jersey, but half that team already has a ring, um, you know, fighting for a job there, finding, finding a spot is difficult on a normal roster. This is a championship caliber team. How, you know, and it, with the fall and spring and stuff, like some guys who you think are guaranteed playing time in October, by the time February rolls around, they're at the bottom of the depth chart and stuff. What was that, that roller coaster like of trying to find a place on that team? Right. It's funny because I remember during fall scrimmages, obviously for us in the Northeast, 
to be completely candid, we're not necessarily playing the best competition day in and day out, right? I think that's why these summer circuits are, are designed and why the scouting industry places so much value on it because it's it's the only look for the industry get, to get somewhat of an extended sample size at consistent high-level competition. So obviously transitioning from New Jersey high school baseball down to the back-to-back -back champions in the SEC is the first time I'd seen people with refined skill sets on the mound and plus breaking balls. And to be candid, I think it was the first time I've ever seen a plus slider. And from my understanding, if I'm recollecting this correctly, I'm pretty positive. I struck out nine times in a row in the fall, nine <laughs> times in a row, which it's, it is somewhat comedic because you feel like you have to put some sort of effort into playing so poorly, if that makes sense. Um, but I remember calling my dad at the time and saying, dad, I'm not quite, quite sure I'm cut out for this level of baseball, you know, and right then and there at that moment, I knew that there was a lot I needed to work on. And this was a whole nother level of baseball. Um, but it was the best thing for me. It really was. I think, I think it put things in perspective. I, I had the opportunity to work diligently with the hitting coach there, Brian Busher and, and Sam Esposito. But for me, um, I was always a perfectionist and overly analytical, which in this game, particularly in the, in the batter's box can hurt you at times. I think in my industry, it's a great thing, but when it comes to competing between the lines against high level competition, you have to strive to be perfect in practice and preparation. But as soon as that game starts, I think it's most beneficial to turn the brain off and just compete, which I had a hard time doing. And um, I remember just struggling immensely, obviously had me in the batting cages, maybe more than I should have been constantly looking for answers and making adjustments outside of just trusting my abilities and, and trusting the fact that, Hey, through more time and more at bats, you will start to become more and more comfortable with this level of competition and ultimately be a productive player for this program. Um, but it's hard. It's hard. You know, you're so used to being the star and you want to make that impact right away. Your whole life, you grow up watching the College World Series on TV, these games on ESPNU, ESPN, et cetera. And now you're in that moment and you feel the severity of it, if that makes sense. Um, but unfortunately, I think, and this is one of my problems back in the day, my, my freshman year, I'd let identity, my identity was in this game, if that makes sense. So I put the value on myself in terms of what I was doing on the field. And I would beat myself up immensely, which looking back at it now, I regret because listen, it's a process of maturation, just like anything else. So, you know, I think it was definitely eye-opening in terms of transitioning from New Jersey high school baseball to the day-to-day high-level competition, the SEC. Um, but it, it honestly, this game calluses you through failure. And I think that prepares you for what's to come in professional baseball. So I will say this, struggling early on, looking at the long-term trajectory of how my career worked out collegiately was the best thing for me. It really yeah, was. And as you mentioned, you know, having that faith in yourself or trying to have that faith of when I get at bats, you know, I'll, I'll figure this out. Well, that, that, that freshman year, you, you know, playing time wise is pretty middling, probably not what you would, you know, in your dreams, wildest dreams would have said, I, you know, obviously I'm sure you want to start every game. You don't get that opportunity at, at SC. What, you know, as things are winding down in that freshman year and you've kind of, especially because once you get to conference play, once you get to the postseason, lineups are pretty set. It, it's tough to break in if you haven't, you know, if you haven't done that by April or so. So when do you start thinking about other options or letting it into your mind that maybe there's a place better for me than, than coming back to South Carolina? 
Yeah. So for me, I was always really passionate about playing shortstop. And at the time we had a great shortstop in Joey Pancake, who was a campus celebrity as well, obviously given the name and yeah. all time college baseball name. Yeah, exactly. So Joey, Joey was a classic and still is to this day. And ironically, we actually ended up playing against each other in the Florida State League in advance day when he was in Lakeland and myself in Melbourne. And, uh, you know, I like to consider myself a realist, too. So looking through a lens of opportunity, I knew that Joey would be the shortstop for the next year, at least. Obviously, he had a chance to be drafted, but, you know, I wanted to give myself the best chance to develop as a ball player. And by no means did it have anything to do with the school or the coaching staff. It was more so putting myself in the best situation to further develop my game and get to the next level. And my goal was always to play in the big leagues, obviously. Um, and I knew the only way to develop my game was by getting an ample amount of playing time, right? So for me, just being real with myself as a player, obviously third base would have been open that next year. I remember Chase was a uh, senior at the time, Chase Ferguson, which he had a really nice year that year. But I knew my skill sets, right? I had pretty good bat to ball skill, but I think long term in terms of maximizing my value, I didn't necessarily have the power to open up eyes at third base. So I knew that if I wanted to maximize my value on a baseball field, that had to be in the middle of the diamond. So that was really pretty much the main basis of me transitioning over to junior college at Indian River. And how did you find your way over to Indian River? What is recruitment like the second time? So it's funny. My roommate at the time was Ryan Ripken, um, who went to Gilman High School. Familiar um, last name, yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so obviously, you know, for, for me, I leaned on him and, and for advice. And I remember looking at different junior colleges, it took quite a few visits and Ryan ended up going to Indian river. And at that point I said, okay, this is familiarity for me. I could, he was my roommate in college at South Carolina too. And uh, you know, we ended up rooming together at Indian river. It was a no brainer. And the selling point for me at Indian river was, was a guy named Mitch Markham, who was my head coach. I remember walking around Fort Pierce, Florida, which listen, it's not the most um, appealing place in the world, it's but not Columbia, would, South Carolina. Not Columbia, South Carolina, and it's not Coral Gables, Florida, if that makes sense. But what it was, was a man that trusted in my abilities and told me, listen, we are trying to develop guys at our program and send them off to the next level, whether that be draft picks or, hey, you go on and play big time college baseball. The reality of it is we're going to put the best nine guys out there. We're going to let them work through failure, work through growing pains. And that's exactly what I needed. Um, his mindset and philosophy resonated with me and it was exactly what I was looking for. And again, I had a friend and, and, and brother that I'd like to consider in Ryan that we could bounce things off each other. We we're going through the same transition together. Um, and it was awesome. It was, it was the time of my life. It was the best thing for me. And what I learned in that process, obviously the pressures of the fan base is taken off you in junior college, right? You're not necessarily playing in front of thousands of fans. So I said to myself, hey, competition at league is pretty good. This competition is not too far off from what I was seeing in the SEC last year, just visualizing most of the time from the bench, obviously. But, you know, the reality of it is all the pressure I was putting on myself was external of the lines. And that's when I realized, hey, anything going on outside of those two light white lines down the first base and third baseline are irrelevant to what I should be focusing on there on the field. And, um, you know, obviously I played well enough to be drafted by the St. Louis Cardinals um, in the 34th round and, and was fortunate enough to get a, a scholarship to the University of Miami, which was, 
ironically, my dream school growing up, um, obviously they stay in state for the most part with recruiting, but I remember taking that visit and it was a no brainer for me. Um, I was actually hoping, remember the first day I sat in Mitch's office and he said, well, where do you want to play college baseball? Well, there's only one place I want to really go to if you're asking me and we're being candid, that's the university of Miami. And um, I remember they actually got in late and I was frustrated. And my first game in Coral Gables, I remember looking at uh, Jim Morris at the time, we called him three. And he said, you know, are you feeling pressure? And again, now I had been through an ample amount of failure and maturation. And I said, you know, three, I don't necessarily think this is pressure anymore. Pressure to me is, is fighting on the front line of the military. So, you know, full circle, that moment was cool for me just because I'd always been passionate about the U and the University of Miami and, and wearing that name across my chest and logo on my hat was a surreal feeling. And, um, you know, I was, I ran with it. And what did your transcript situation look like after bouncing through multiple schools right. and university of Miami, Miami isn't actually an elite academic institution. I think a lot of people think of it as like this football powerhouse, but Miami prides itself on being Miami is a, is a ritzy, ritzy little private school over there in Coral Gables. So yeah. how does that work out? I, I know when I was in college, we would have guys who would come in, especially who had been at four-year schools, transferred to junior college. And sometimes that stuff doesn't, doesn't transfer in cleanly. As far as your dream to become an agent, did the tran did transferring around set that back any? No, it's funny because fortunate enough for me, all my credits ended up transferring to the University of Miami. And it's and here's another thing. At this point, I actually ended up switching my major to economics at the time. Because I minored in sport management, I wanted to have a, a wider range of knowledge and test myself. So I remember transitioning over to an econ major, which obviously down the line, prior to getting into this business, I took a job at Morgan Stanley, um, passed my Series 7 in 66. But, you know, listen, for me, I was fortunate enough that all my credits transferred over to the U. And uh, obviously from there, it was baseball. And, and uh, Heather Kutrakis was our academic advisor at the time who obviously helped structure our workload. She's awesome. Um, she's my hero. She helped us a ton. And we had access to obviously the best tutors because, you know, balancing an econ degree while playing baseball in the ACC and traveling wasn't the easiest thing. But again, anything worthwhile in life entails sacrifice. So um, for me, I never necessarily felt like I was working. I was just as passionate, maybe more so about academics than I was baseball. So for me, you know, I'd bring my books on the road. I would study diligently and I like to consider myself a locker room nerd, to be honest which I prided myself in. Um, and I wasn't the only one in that locker room that, that looked at it the same way. I think we had a band of brothers in there, not only on the field, but we pushed each other off it too. And we still t stay in touch to this day. Obviously the work, the networking pool at that school is, is unbelievable. And um, you know, I just felt very, very fortunate at the time going from D one to junior college, being back in that division one pool, I felt really fortunate and I knew I had to do everything in my power to run with that opportunity. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that, that year at Miami. Um, you do, I guess the natural Jersey thing, you decide to spend your winters and spring in Miami, right. uh, the, just the, the natural <laughs> migration there, but you come into that team. You're now a guy who, you know, you've done that year, junior college had a very successful year, gotten drafted. You come into a team that had, there are a couple of future high draft picks on that roster, a couple of younger guys, especially like Collins, Bray, you, their sophomores, you're a junior, you're stepping in, 
you end up starting, you know, 64 games for that team. You start every game that you guys play that year. What, as far as, you know, every team you do the, you know, you break it out and fall Omaha, you know, whatever we're going to Omaha, we're going to Omaha. When do you actually, you know, get the, the real belief that like, we might, we can actually do this. Like, this is a realistic thing. This team can get there. Right. I think from the first day in the locker room, uh, for me, I just saw the, the bond, realistically, the bond. And we had so much firepower at the plate. Offensively, it was, it was unbelievable. Um, it made my job really easy as a hitter when you're being protected by Zach Collins, one of the best hitters in the country, followed by David Thompson, who was a Golden Spikes finalist that year. Um, so for me, I knew all I needed to do was barrel the ball, get on base. And I had two guys behind me that were going to drive me in. Um, Andy Suarez, who's one of my best buddies, was um, second round pick to the Giants that year. Obviously spearheaded that staff along with Thomas Woodry. And uh, we had a great bullpen and Brian Garcia, who's in the big leagues with the Tigers and Cooper Hammond side armor. Um, but we had everything you needed to obviously go as far as as Omaha. So. And, and again, I think for us, what, what separated us and, and any great team is the camaraderie, the belief in each other, the brotherhood, um, fighting through tough times, because there's no predicting how the season's going to work out. But I think what leads to consistency is, is discipline, hard work, routines, and obviously passion. We we're all passionate about the U and ultimately for us getting to Omaha, getting there wasn't even just our goal, obviously didn't work out. We wanted to win the whole thing. Um, the experience was unbelievable, but I'd say the first day in the locker room, I know we had a realistic chance and, and maybe that's a little bit bias and the cane in me. I, I'd like to think if you cut me open, there'd be some orange and green in there. Um, so maybe you're asking the wrong guy that question. <laughs> so that, that run up to Omaha, you guys are national seed. It means you host a regional it means if you move on, you host a super regional. So you, you win that regional. And then coming to Coral Gables for the Supers is VCU a four seed Cinderella yeah. story. Yeah, it's been six years. It's not about disrespecting an opponent. Were there like silent fist pumps in your locker room? Like, oh, we got a four seed. Uh, you're gonna get me in trouble, Kyle. Um, we knew at that point in the season that anybody that came into campus and, and played against us was going to be a battle. I remember at the time, I think Jojo Howie was their Friday night starter. I don't know if you remember that name. And Jojo had the most unique antics on the mound and he had elite pitchability. Um, I remember, I think our first game, there was actually a significant rain delay and, and Jojo came out, came back out. Obviously we won that game. I forget the score off the top of my head, but silent fist pumps, you're going to get me in trouble. Um, we thought they'd be a competitor for us. We did. Obviously we were fortunate enough to win both games, um, but it was uh, it was a battle. They put up a fight and, we were fortunate enough to get through that and get to Omaha. You mentioned the rain delay. Uh, rain, I'd imagine, happens a lot in Miami from what I've heard about Florida. I, I was actually just in Disney. It rained a lot. Uh, but rain also happens in Omaha. It is a, you know, a time-honored tradition of rain delays in Omaha, you know, whatever. When you're in the season, you have your routine, especially as a hitter, feel all that stuff very important. You got your midweek game. You got your three on the weekend. You're, you've got that routine. Once the postseason starts, you've got your ACC tournament, you've got your regionals, your supers, but then Omaha is like this, this spaced out thing where you've got all these big events around it. There's a lot of buzz, families coming in, friends, family, stuff like that. And then the game, you know, you've got a game, you wait a day, you've got another game, you wait a day. 
how do you how do you keep up routine when your routine is completely upended? Yeah, to be honest, it was, it was very difficult because there's a lot of obligation outside of actually competing um, at TV at the time as well. Whether it's it's going to the children's hospital, which to be honest was probably the most impactful part about the whole trip. Um, being able to put smiles on kids' face that are obviously less less fortunate in terms of where they are in health was an unbelievable experience. It really is. And the way that the whole town buys into that event is something that I'll never forget. And it's one of the things I tell players now that have that opportunity to either, hey, make an ample amount of money in the draft or move on to college baseball. I always tell them about my experience in Omaha because that's something I wish every kid could experience, to be honest. It's, it's that unbelievable. Um, but in terms of routine on field, I'd say it was pretty difficult. I, I really would. I think three games seemed like a month's workload just because of how dragged out that process is. Obviously, we ran into a juggernaut in Florida. Um, they were absolutely loaded that year. They had Alex Fayetto, A.J. Puck, Logan Shore, Richie Martin, Buddy Reed, Harrison Bader, Pete Alonzo, Guthrie, Josh Tobias. I mean, they were they were loaded. Um, put this in perspective, Dane Dunning was in their bullpen who ended up being a first-round pick. So, you know, obviously we ran into a tough team there, um, lost that game one, ended up playing Arkansas. Ben Intendi was on that team. We actually did pretty decent enough job in shutting him down that game. But um, I remember Jacob Hayward hit a walk off that game. And then game three ran back into the Gators. And, uh, you know, we uh, obviously didn't hold up too well that game. So, but the experience itself was unbelievable. Well, and going into Omaha, you already had an idea of what life after Omaha was going to be with the draft happening before the College World Series. How difficult is that? And I guess you're on the other side of that coin now. Um, obviously, the draft was not as it this year was not as it used to be, you know, right before the College World Series. But you were on the other side. You're on the other side of that coin now and advising someone about going on with the draft. But how difficult is it to keep focused on what's going on with the, you know, what's going on with your actual on-field stuff. And then also the draft where, because of, you know, especially if you're going to be a top 10 rounds guy, you basically have to make a decision. What am I signing for? You know, am I a draftable guy? So how did you, how did you come up with that figure? How did you, you know, balance, do that balancing act of, I got the draft coming up. I got this, you know, this baseball dream. I'm also trying to get to Omaha. Right. So I think it was, it was, different for us I remember being drafts a frustrating process and sometimes you see names going off the board and internally obviously we're all competitive say wait I should have I should have went before that guy this that or the next so for me obviously going in the seventh round everybody thinks they should go higher in the draft that's what makes all these players great um but as soon as that script ended it was hey I want to win a national championship and that's realistically why I came to the University of Miami and I think all of us thought the same way, whether that was myself, Suarez, Eusebio, Kennedy, all of us thought, hey, as soon as this draft ends, it's on to the next. We have a job to finish here. Um, so for me, I think that's what led us all to play at such an elite level that year as well is because the draft takes the back burner in college. It really does. You get this tunnel vision and trying to get to Omaha and, and win a World Series that the rest of that stuff takes care of itself. And we all bought into that thought process. So I, I think for us, to be honest, that was never an issue just because we held each other accountable. And there's a certain standard at the University of Miami where you expect to win every game you play. 
So as soon as the draft ended, you turn the page, hey, let's go win a ring. Obviously, unfortunately, it didn't work out, but that was our mindset going into it. So guys get bounced out of the College World Series. Had you pre-agreed with the with the Brewers? Like, did they, you know, was the number selected? Was there basically any hang up between going to going from Omaha to going to Helena? No, there was no hang up in terms of the signing bonus. What I did ask for was a couple of days at home. Um, it obviously had been a long year. I didn't necessarily want to go right from Omaha to Helena. I wanted a couple of days to enjoy the whole year with my family. Um, so the Brewers were nice enough to let me do that. And then was off and playing rookie ball. What's the, were you in a lease in Miami? Like what your, your off campus, like, what is, do you have to, I got to get, I get back from Omaha. I got to get all my stuff out. I got to get back up to my folks place that I got to go. Yeah, no. Yeah. So thankfully my parents came down and helped me pack up and we actually drove back up together to New Jersey. And then from there, obviously flew out to Helena. So something we've talked about before, uh, about like the financials of college baseball, you, you signed for 200 K, how much of that money did you see? And then how does that stack up with expenses? Like in your few years of pro ball, how much did that bonus quote unquote bonus have to cover that regular paychecks did not cover? Right. I think I, I ended up coming out with a little bit North of a hundred grand. Um, and in terms of expenses, listen, you're not, you're not making much money in pro ball. That's just the reality of this until you get to the 40 man roster, you are kind of trying to work in creative ways to get by. Um, so for us, it was always bunking up rookie ball for us was a host family, which was very affordable, thankfully. And then when you skipped low way and went over to Melbourne, I remember, um, you know, we got a, we got an apartment by the field, but I think it was a three bedroom with four of us in there, just trying to be as cost efficient as possible and stretch out that dollar. I, I listen, I always tried to live within my means. So I tried to save as much of that bonus as possible and live very humbly throughout all the minor leagues. So I actually ended up saving a, a very good amount of my bonus personally, but um, you know, I'll say this, I think one of the benefits of, of being a higher draft pick is that now you get to invest some of that money in yourself. You can get the nicer apartment. You can get the better training. You can get the better food. Senior signs, you know, run through a hypothetical that signed for five to $10,000. They're living paycheck to paycheck. That's tough. Maybe in opposition to going to the Applebee's and getting grilled chicken that night, they have to go with the alternative in McDonald's or Wendy's or whatever it may be, just because now financially, that's all they can afford. Um, Did you maybe- avoid the air mattress? I avoided the air mattress. I made it, I made it um, a point to avoid the air mattress personally. I valued sleep. Different people value different things, right? So for me, I, I always wanted to put my head on a, on a nice pillow at night because um, I think you need separation from the field. And it's one of the hardest things in professional baseball. Let's be honest, in, in the minor leagues, when you're playing 140 games, um, it's tough. You know, you're leaving the field, you're coming home at 11 o'clock at night, and then you're back at one o'clock for BP. So you don't necessarily have too much time away from it. So when I did come home, I tried to find some sort of release, we'll call it. And for me, that was living in a decent space, having a decent bed to sleep on and checking in with family and friends. When baseball becomes that job, how much, you know, how much of your life is dedicated to baseball? Like what's the off field life like for a minor league baseball player? Is there really did you really have any sense of life outside of the field or is it just like sitting in your apartment trying to try to rest your body? Listen, I, I have never been so refined in my skill set in video games. And I was in the minor leagues. 
And it's funny because I try and keep up with these young players now and I can still compete because all the time I put in in the minors. Um, so off field life, I think one of my regrets personally, and I'd advise people to do this now, obviously you're playing in some really unique cities in the minors. But for me, I always put an immense amount of pressure on myself as a player. So I wouldn't necessarily get out there and explore as much as I probably should have. Uh, my biggest regret to this day, Kyle, we had an off day in Helena, Montana, and everybody took the trip up to Yellowstone and I decided to rest that day. And looking back at it now today, I'm saying those have been some cool videos and pictures and, and a unique experience because I'm not quite sure when I'll be back in Montana. So, um, you know, for me, outside of the field, that really was my life. Um, and then trying to figure out how to enhance my career, whether that was through diet, workout routines, making an adjustment in my swing, et cetera. Those are the things I was honestly thinking about at home because, I mean, I guess there's a saying in the minors, if you don't like it, play better. Um, so you're always trying to find a way to get to the next level and ultimately get to the big leagues, which obviously leads to more money as well. What did you think your path to the big leagues was? Because obviously everyone wants to be a Hall of Fame player, you know, get that $300 million contract, that whole thing. What for you, did you kind of envision yourself as this is how I'll work my way up the ladder and this is what I'll be in the big leagues? Right. I think for me, just given the fact that, you know, my position profile wasn't necessarily definitive, I knew I had to be the guy that was uber athletic, move around the field and make an impact with the bat. Um, unfortunately, I never necessarily tapped into my raw power. So I knew I had to just make the plays when the ball was hit at me and try and get on base and, and steal bags and was hoping that the power would come in time. Um, it never did. But that was that would have been my path. I think in a perfect world, if I'm living on a dream, I would have been similar to a Chris Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> playing playing all over the field. Playing so all over. with that, I mean, again, baseball is your job. The the seven o'clock game is only a, a small portion of it. How much work are you putting in at different spots? And what are you doing to your swing? Like when you say, I hope the power will come. Where does that, is that I'm trying to get stronger? Is that I'm making adjustments? That's right as the, the phrase launch angle got, got introduced to all of us. So where do, where do you, where did those tweaks come in your, your couple of years in pro ball? Yeah. So I remember our, my first hitting coordinator was a guy named Jeremy Reed. Um, and Jeremy was one of the best minor league hitters at the time was a pretty good draft pick at a long beach state. And I had really, really good hand speed, but I never utilized my legs. And my bat path wasn't always great. So I, I wish back in the day we had the blast motion, which dictates and detects planner efficiency. I didn't have that. I was just saying, I think something's wrong here because I keep batting balls into the dirt on the barrel, nonetheless, but beating balls into the ground. Um, so I think the biggest thing for Jeremy and I was, number one, learning how to utilize my legs. And two, how are we going to clean up the bat path? Um, but again, I think this stems back to me being a perfectionist. So instead of going through those growing pains, I wanted to put up numbers, right? So that I would always revert back to what felt comfortable, but to be quite honest, that wasn't necessarily what was best for the long-term trajectory of my career. So me wanting to compete and get on base actually might've hampered my development at that time. When you think about your, your life in baseball, you go, not big fish, small pond in Jersey, but as a top guy in a non powerhouse baseball state, there's a, there's a level of prestige and a level of success you'd enjoyed. You have a hiccup in South Carolina, but you rake in junior college. You win the ACC batting title as a junior. What is the, is there any kind of like mental come down from 
being in pro ball and being a solid draft pick, but not a top draft pick and saying, I am, you know, kind of lowering expectations for what, what you were in college and college, you're a mainstay on a college world series team versus I'm trying to be this role guy. I'm trying to do a few things. I'm trying to make it to the big leagues as a, as a Chris Taylor, who that's peak career, you know, this guy made an all-star team, but you know, as a guy can move around and play a role on a team, is there, is there difficulty in having that mental adjustment after being a top guy on basically every team you've ever played on? Yeah, I think no doubt. I think there's a transition period. Um, but for me, I was always that player on, on whatever team I played for. Like Thompson and Collins were the stars in our lineup that particular year. So for me, I was always the role guy. Um, junior college is a little bit different, but despite me playing so well in junior college, I was never the guy that hit home runs. But I stood out a little bit more because obviously majority of the best players are at the division one level. Um, so for me, not necessarily. I think that's always the player I was. I, my dad did something early on in my life that I feel like was incredibly beneficial for me. And that was making me always play with older kids. So for me, I was always scratching and clawing to compete. And um, I think long term that helped me kept, keep an even keel mind, be realistic and, and ultimately just try and help my team win however I could, wherever that was, whether it's Coral Gables or Helena or Biloxi, Mississippi. So Biloxi, your second full year in pro ball. If you look at the stats, just outwardly, it looks like you got hurt. Right. What was your year in Biloxi actually like? Yeah, so I was playing about once every three or four days, um, which obviously in this game at such a high level, if you're not getting steady, consistent playing time, it's really hard to piece together, you know, it, an appealing sample size, if that makes sense. So I, I struggled immensely. And I remember being put on what's called the phantom disabled list, which is essentially creating a roster spot for another player to have an opportunity to piece together some better numbers and lead to more production. Um, remember at the time I was supposed to be on this phantom list for about seven days. We're out in Jacksonville. It had been about 15. And, um, you know, I'm talking to my agent at the time and, and the brewers wanted to either send me to extended or low A to get at bats. And to me, this is probably the analytical perfectionist in me again, which is a good thing in my business, not so much as a player. Everyone in high A at the time was a high priority guy that had been given a ton of money in the draft. So to me, the writing was on the wall, if that makes sense. Um, and I'll never forget, we get back to Biloxi that night and I grab two or three of my buddies. I say, hey, guys, um, I'm going home. And they look at me like I'm crazy, Kyle. And I, I tell families this story, too, and I'm not sure they believe me, but it's the truth. And they say, what do you mean you're going home? I said, no, I'm packing up my stuff. I'm going to go back to school and I'm going to be an agent like this is my time. I always told myself when I see a regression period in, in my professional career is when I will step away, um, because for me, this game never identified me. It really didn't. My mom taught me that from an early age. So as soon as I saw like I was regressing, I made that choice to get in my car and go home and um you know, for me, I actually left unannounced. I did. I remember telling my dad, he had no idea I was leaving. And I was taken off the Phantom and he's like, hey, what time is the game tonight? And I said, well, there's no game. I'm, I'm on my way home. To be honest, I'm going to go back to school, get my degree and move on to the next stage in life, which for me was always obviously passionate about being an agent. But that's kind of my Phantom disabled list story. It led me to step away from the game. Did you have a conversation with the Brewers or did you call them when you got home? And be like, I'm not, not going to be at the stadium tonight. Yeah, it was more so through my agent. Obviously at the time I, I pretty much said like, I'm not doing that. 
Um, I'm going home. I'm done. And uh, obviously he gave me some good advice, but my mind was made up, if that makes sense. Um, there was no convincing me otherwise. It's the kind of person I am. If I set my mind on something, I do feel like I have all the ability to accomplish it. And there was no doubt in my mind that I would make a uh, decent player rep, a great one in my opinion, one day. And uh, I made that step to leave Biloxi and drive home. Was there still a mourning period for your career? Did you did you lament the you know hanging up? Because once you hang them up, it's there's no there's nothing like competitive baseball. Men's league does not is not the same. No, it's not. Um, mourning period. It's funny. <sighs> Initially, no, there wasn't. I think it hit me when the baseball season started up at Miami. And obviously it started to eat at me like, Hey man, you, you let this go for the rest of your life. You realize that. Right. But I, I honestly, Kyle was okay with it. Cause I knew what I wanted to do in life. I'd always been passionate about player representation since I was a really young kid. It's funny. Cause even in professional locker rooms growing up in rookie ball, I would tell guys like, listen, I'm going to be an agent one day. I'm not going to be a big leaguer. I, and it's funny. If you ask guys I played with or against, they tell you the same thing. That was always my mindset. So for me, I ironically, I actually had a little bit of an easier time transitioning from former pro athlete to, hey, everyday student. I had a goal in mind and I wasn't stopping until I got there. And you were able to use the the scholarship program that that was worked into your your uh, your deal with them with the, with the brewers, correct? Yes. Yes, I did. Which was very helpful. Obviously, only needing a year of education, if that makes sense. Um, so it was two semesters for me, but that was very helpful for me, obviously not having to dig into my bonus as much. So that was great. And you mentioned you, you went to work for Morgan Stanley. When did you transition into being an agent? How do you, how'd you get involved in that world? It's funny. I was in uh, wealth management and obviously, honestly, they're pretty similar industries. One, you're managing finances. The other, you're managing a player's career. Um, and I remember we're coming up on something called production month zero, where you start piecing together your business model and figuring out how am I going to start to accumulate these assets for the company? And I'm suit and tie every day, right? Sitting in front of dual monitors. And one day I remember walking in and it had been bugging at me. And the reason why I took the job initially, I think I knew somewhat internally long-term, I'd never necessarily last in finance because I wasn't passionate about it. But I also didn't want to be the guy that went directly from professional baseball to agent. I thought it was too cliche and I wanted to test myself, to be quite honest. And again, this is broadening my knowledge on, on the finance world and, and really proving to myself I can do it and proving others wrong. Um, as crazy as that may sound, that was that was kind of my mindset going into it. Now, fast forward, I, I, I remember they put these two big FINRA books on my desk for the Series 7 and 66 probably an immense amount of people at the firm thinking I was going to fail those exams because at Morgan Stanley, it's one and done. If you fail, you're out. So the pressure was on, which I loved. I actually got a thrill out of that. Um, and I, I remember passing those tests, which Kyle, I was incredibly proud of because there's actually no correlation between the language of, of an econ degree and finance are two totally different things. Um, so when I passed those, I think outside of being drafted, that was probably the best feeling I've ever had, if that makes sense. But I, and I also knew internally that I always wanted to be an agent, which ate at me. Um, again, back to production month zero, I remember staring at my reflection in these dual monitor screens saying, this is not my calling. This is not my calling. And if I don't step away right now, 
I'm going to be caught up in this world, nine to five monotonous lifestyle for the rest of my life, which is, it's great, but I knew it wasn't for me. I had a larger calling and I was convicted in that. So I remember going home that night, um, talking to my parents at the time and saying, Hey guys, I'm resigning from Morgan Stanley. And again, they kind of gave me that look that my buddies did in the locker room. Like, what are you talking about? You're crazy. Um, I handed in my resignation letter. My manager at the time, who was awesome, said, you can stay here till you find, find a job. But I was fully convicted that I knew this would work out. And um, that's, that's when I started to transition or attempt to make that transition over to player rep. So that's that. So what does a good agent bring to the table? Because I think is from the outsider's point of view, baseball fans, when we think of agents, we think of Scott Borish negotiating, you know, a rod's deal or, you know, a, you know, the draft bonus thing, what there's probably a lot more to the job than just hammering out a contract. What is your, your day-to-day and kind of what, what are you bringing to, what is what does the agent bring to your players? And like, what did your agent bring to you as you were playing? I know first and foremost, I do think we're business managers and the most important component of this business. I think it's, there's two spheres to this. It's maximizing the player's value and two, obviously building a trusted relationship. Um, So for me being a former player, I think having the ability to empathize with, with kids and families and walking them through this process brings me a lot of fulfillment. Um, But again, it is a business too. So you're obviously constantly educating these families finding different creative ways to try and say, Hey, here's your value. We need to maximize this outside of you building these trusted relationships. That is probably the most important component of this business. Um, Day-to-day fluctuates, which is probably why I love this job. So I think every day I wake up, I try to look at box scores and articles and league around uh, news around the league. And then from there I'll send texts accordingly or calls um, and then it really depends on where you're at. If, if it's over the summer, obviously we're traveling extensively to different events. Um, but again, all the while that phone is so important because, hey, you're checking in on box scores. People are calling and texting. Problems pop up. There really is no definitive day to day. And I think that's my favorite part about this job, to be honest. And we had talked previously for an article I wrote for, I think it was the August issue of the magazine about high school players deciding if, or, you know, if they should sign, if they, if they don't, that's just one of many choices that, that a player has over his career. And do I sign out of high school? Do do I go to college? Do I forego my senior year, you know, or do I, do I return for my senior year? Do I drive home from Biloxi if I'm on the phantom? When you counsel players and you you take on your career experiences, you know, how do you what's the I guess like the fine line between telling a guy what what in your mind? I'm sure when there's a decision like that, you think I think you should do this because that's that's how life is like I I'm a parent. I always think tell my son, you know, I think you should do this. But what's the fine line in in mentoring versus telling? Right. I think, well, we should never play God in any player's life, but it's also our job to inform and help these players understand what their worth may be and and the value of a college education and experience for that matter. And I think that becomes really easy for me because I live both sides, both attending college, obviously having a little bit of a roller coaster ride and playing professional baseball, obviously not reaching the epitome of success in the big leagues, but a large enough sample size to speak on it, if that makes sense. Um, so what does that look like? I think it fluctuates based on the family and what the player wants and needs. I don't think there's any definitive way to represent a player. Everybody's different and has different goals, 
But at the same time, I do believe it is our job to inform these players consistently and, and help them maximize their value. Because despite the willingness to want to play professional baseball, I don't necessarily think that means that you all of a sudden diminish your value because of that want to. Does that make sense? Or your financial situation at home. It's about the market for you with all 30 clubs and having to bypass three to four years of a college education. So, George, I got a little rapid fire for you, then I'll let you get out of here. All right. Favorite minor league ballpark? Oh, man. Honestly, MGM in Biloxi. It's unbelievable. They have the Beau Rivage out there in the outfield. It is quite the view. Um, Brand new your first year there, right? Brand new. I watched a lot of games from the dugout, so I got a great view of that casino out there in in right center field, I believe it is. (laughs) Favorite away college ballpark in Omaha, TD Ameritrade does not count. Okay, uh, North Carolina Chapel Hill. I love the brick scoreboard. Um, love that campus there. It's uh, that's my favorite away field. Best pitcher you ever faced? Oh, man, for me it was Rob Zastrzny. I don't know if you remember him from Missouri. I had a designated hitting game against the University of Missouri at South Carolina my freshman year, and he did not have to revert to the breaking ball. It was heater <laughs> right by me. Very embarrassing day for me. <laughs> was it was it gas? Was it yeah. high spin fastball or what? Interesting. So I think if we had the track man today, you'd have a lot of induced vertical break because I kept swinging and missing at this thing and saying, how am I missing these fastballs? I think the pitch metrics on his fastball would, would you know, relate to uh, some some serious draft traction in today's game. Who would you rather beat? Uh, and let's just say for, for Miami, who would you rather Miami beat in football, Florida State or Florida? No question, Florida State. <laughs> Not, that, that, game will, that game will be interesting this year. That is, uh, that is, that is two teams. Not, not to dive into a different sport, but that is two teams in, in some deep kind of trouble. Is, uh, last deep. thing, thing I ask everyone, nightmare bus ride story from the minor leagues. My goodness, it had to be going from Helena to Grand Junction, Colorado. I'm pretty sure I woke up from a 14-hour bus ride and had to take batting practice. Uh, ironically, I think I got two hits that day, so maybe long bus rides are uh, a good thing for me. Maybe that was that was the key. George, that's all I've got for you. Thank you so much for coming on from Feen Out of the Farm. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. You got it. And that's it for today's episode of From Phenom to the Farm. Big thanks to George Iskandarian for walking us through his career journey. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you're subscribed wherever you get your podcast. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star rating and a review. Tell us what you think of the show. And go subscribe to BaseballAmerica.com. Heading into the MLB postseason. We'll catch you in two weeks on this podcast. Thanks for listening.